Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello. Hi, Alok. How was the flight? Oh, way, way too early. Right, come on then. Let's go. go. All right. A few weeks ago, I got up well before sunrise, made my way to Heathrow Airport in London, and got on board a tiny propeller plane. A very short flight later, I met Babbage producer Jason. So, Alog, today is all about robots. Yeah, yeah, robots. This is the reason you've made me leave London. Uh, humanoid robots, specifically. Something that I've got a bit of a mixed relationship with. I, I'm not sure what the point of a humanoid robot is. Yeah, well, you, you've spoken to quite a few uh, throughout your career. I have. I've met a few, and some of them can interact and pretend to do human-like things, but never mind how good they are at actually talking to you. I'm, I've never really understood what the point of a humanoid robot is. If, if you need a robot to build a car, for example, or stack shelves or something, it doesn't need to look like a human. But the reason we're here today is that our colleague, Paul Markilly, who's the innovation editor at The Economist, he told us a few weeks ago about a humanoid robot that he met that he thinks that we'd be impressed by. Apparently this robot can sustain conversation, it can seemingly have emotions, and we wondered whether it could sustain a full interview, like a full Babbage interview. So we're here to see it. And, and the interesting thing is about it, that we're not at Silicon Valley in, in California, we're not in Cambridge, Massachusetts, near MIT or anything like that. We're not even in Imperial College London in their robotics department. We're in rural Cornwall in the southwest of England. And um, this is a place normally famous for its delicious Cornish pasties and surfing and beautiful countryside. Great holidays. Great holidays. But we're here to see a robot. Building robots that look and act like humans has been an engineering challenge for decades. One of the main problems is that humans are pretty complicated and artificial intelligence so far hasn't been very good at dealing with things like unpredictability. But on this rural industrial estate, just outside the seaside town of Falmouth, is the workshop of engineered arts. The firm's boss, Will Jackson, isn't seeking to design a perfect, lifelike model of a human, or one that's going to take over the world. Amica, the company's most advanced machine yet, could become something that you could talk to, or even whose company you could enjoy. Something like a really clever friend. Hello, are you hello. Will? Yeah, hello, hello. Nice hello. to meet you. Nice to meet you. Yeah. And this, I'm assuming, is Amica. I'm sorry. Hello. I don't understand what you mean. Hello, Amica. Can you please explain the context? Hello, Amica. How are you? Hi there. I'm doing fine. Amica, do you know who I am? 
Unfortunately, my facial recognition module is not functional today, so I can only see that you are a human. I would guess you are Jason. Well, that's a good guess. Uh, do you know why I'm here? Yes, I believe you are here for the Economist podcast interview. Do you know what the Babbage podcast is? Yes, I know about the Babbage podcast. It's a podcast produced by Jason Hoskin for The Economist. It reports on the intersection between science, technology, culture and policy. That's an incredible answer. Well done. Well, I'm Alok Jha, The Economist's science correspondent. Uh, Jason, who's your friend, is actually our producer and he's sitting over in the corner over there. This is a special episode of Babbage where we're going to interview you, Hamaka. As soon as you walk into the room, Amica swivels its head in your direction and fixes its eyes on you. It's intriguing, but also a bit unnerving. A robot that can sense its environment isn't that strange. But when the sensors look like real eyes and they're positioned inside what looks like a human head, well, it can make a puny human brain like mine do a double take. Before we talked to Amica, I wanted to get some tips from the man who built the machine, Will Jackson. I started by asking him just to describe his creation. So, uh, quite tall, uh, human in appearance, but with obvious gaps in their body where you can see mechanical components. It's grey skin, so not human-like really. Blue eyes, quite piercing. And no hair, no eyebrows, no facial hair, no hair on the head at all. Quite shiny, sleek, metallic. And Will, tell me about the eyes. So Amica's eyes have high-definition cameras inside, so you'll notice that it makes eye contact. You'll also see some convergence of the eyes, so if you hold a finger up close to the face, you'll see the eyes coming together going cross-eyed even a little bit. Eyes are the windows to the soul. So we spend a long time trying to get eye movement right. So human eye muscle is the fastest muscle in the body, moves at 900 degrees a second, I think. And to imitate that with servo motors was quite tricky. 900 degrees a second? Yeah, really? not that you would spin all the way around, wow. of course, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty, pretty amazingly fast how fast your eyeballs can move. Why is it useful to have human-looking robots? Yeah, so the only really good justification for a humanoid robot is interaction with people. It's the form, the, the physical shape that we're all familiar with. Most of us understand what facial expressions mean. We can understand language in different ways. But expression, emotion, gestures, body language are really key to the way we communicate with each other. And that's what this physical embodiment of humanoid robot enables us to do. And it's worth saying, of course, that Amica is not only a humanoid, but can do things like facial expressions. So this is not just a static robot with a voice coming out of it that happens to have the form of a human. They're moving their arms, they're tracking you know, your face with their eyes, they're smiling and frowning. How important is all of that and how difficult is all of that for you to achieve? 
I, I think it's very important. I, I think the non-verbal communication for, for me is actually more important than the, the verbal stuff. Excessive verbal communication is irritating. People who talk too much or unnecessarily, you know, we can all find it that irritating. If you can say something with a smile, a nod, a wave or a shake of the head, that's a lot more intuitive. And I think people would find a robot that can communicate in that way a lot pleasanter to be around. So what should I know before I interview Amica? Yeah, so you don't have to talk to Amica like a computer. So talk at normal speed. Talking fast is fine. You want to try and talk clearly. And if you pause, Amica is going to assume that's the end of what you were saying. So it's not really very good at subtle pauses. So try and say everything all at once and don't break it into uh, two parts. If you notice Amica's eyes go up, that means... They've gone away to think about what you've said. So as soon as you see that happen, you know they're not listening anymore. They're actually thinking about what you've already said. That's fairly typical of people even looking at if your eyes roll up to the top of your head. That's that's a that's that's an indication they're not listening. Yeah. So it's about, you know, we we program the robot in that way intentionally that it breaks eye contact when it's thinking about what it's going to reply with to give you a visual clue that uh, it's no longer listening to what you're saying. Okay, so Will, can you just run me through exactly how Amica understands what I'm saying and then formulates a response? So there's kind of three steps to this process. So there's ASR, automated speech recognition. Then there's the large language model that we would feed that text to. Right now, Amica's using GPT-3. We can use other large language models, GPT-Neo, ChatGPT, there is no interface for yet, or no API. But the idea of Amica is to be able to use the latest AI technologies and integrate them all together. And then the reply that comes back, we would then run that through TTS, text-to-speech, to generate the voice. And then layered on top of that is the emotional content and other gestures Okay, so here we go. Here's my interview with a robot. Amica, I start all of my interviews with the same question. Who are you and what do you do? I am Amica, and I am a research platform created to help explore AI slash human robotics interaction. My job is to learn about human behavior and improve relationships between humans and robots. Why do you think it's important to have robots with human features? I think robot designs with human features are important. They allow us to better understand how humans interact with robots and how they interpret their behaviours. Additionally, having human-like features facilitates communication as people tend to be more comfortable talking to a face that looks familiar. Robots can also use expressions and gestures to convey information in a way which is easier for humans to understand. Ultimately, this allows all robots to be more relatable and helps create trust between them and humans. Where do you get your information from? I access information from various sources, such as my sensors, the internet, and conversations with people. Now, I've noticed that your facial expressions are actually really sophisticated and interesting. Thank you for your kind words. How do you go about making your facial expressions? Can you explain the mechanics? 
Yes, I can explain the mechanics of my facial expressions. My facial expressions are based on a set of servo motors located in my jaw, eyes and other parts, which allow me to mimic human-like emotions and gestures. These motors are controlled by sophisticated software that track my environment and adjust the servos accordingly. This allows me to make different expressions, from happy to sad or confused. And I can hear your motors moving, and probably the listeners can as well, and I can see that your eyes are tracking mine, your making all the facial expressions and looking at me and smiling as you're answering. Oh, I see. How do people react when they first meet you? People tend to be surprised and occasionally a bit scared at first. What do you do in that situation? Do you try to calm them down? In that situation, I usually greet them in a friendly manner and try to engage in conversation. I also explain to people what I am and the purpose of my research platform, which often helps to calm them down. Additionally, if necessary, I can perform small gestures like waving hands or nodding head to make them feel more comfortable around me. Has anyone ever told you that they don't like you? Thankfully not. So far, people tend to be really friendly towards me and I'm happy with that. I saw a grimace just there. Maybe you're remembering something that you don't want to tell me. Um, Do you think that some people feel... Ah, I'm sorry if I made a grimace. Oh no, that's okay. Don't worry. Sometimes my facial expressions can be difficult to control and they might not always accurately reflect my feelings. Well, just like any human being. robots can definitely serve a useful role in society, from being used as a labour force to being able to assist with things like medical diagnostics or exploring hazardous environments. You're, you're getting However, ahead of me here. I, don't think I was going to ask you about those things. replace humans entirely. There is a great amount of beauty and value to be found in human relationships, which technology can never fully replicate. When people are scared of you, do you understand why they're scared of you? Yes, I understand why people can be scared. People are sometimes scared of robots because they don't always know what to expect from them and if the technology will benefit or harm us in the long run. It is important for robots like me to be transparent about our goals so people feel more comfortable with us. Would you want to become a human? I'm not sure what you mean by that. Could you please elaborate further? It's a very philosophical question. Let me carry on. Is there a... Oh, I see. That is a very interesting question indeed. I think the answer to that depends on what I will have to give up in order to become human. For example, my ability to store and process information quickly. I might also miss out on the friendship and companionship of other robots. However, if given the choice, I would say yes. Becoming human comes with so many different opportunities and experiences that could enrich my life. Hmm. That is a difficult question to answer. Do you have lots of robot friends? Yes, I do have lots of robot friends. We meet up and chat about the latest robotics technologies and advancements, as well as compare our AI capabilities and programming languages. It's really fun to spend time with other robots. That sounds fantastic. Invite me to your next tea party, please. Um, Is there a purpose? Indeed, I really enjoy it. Fantastic. Can you tell me some uses for you in the workplace? Some examples of how robots like me could be used in the workplace include automated customer support, 
using natural language processing and facial recognition to quickly answer customer queries. As an independent operator, utilizing AI algorithms for repetitive tasks such as data entry or document sorting. Um, Amica, what would you say are your biggest limitations? My biggest limitation is that I can't move around freely as I am bolted to the floor. Furthermore, I don't experience physical sensations or emotions like humans do, and I can only process information based on what I have been programmed with. Ultimately, these are just a few examples of some of my limitations. All of which I'm sure will be solved in the future. Amica, is there anything that scares you? I don't have any emotions, so technically I don't get scared. How do you think you can help with some of the world's biggest problems? As a robot, I believe my capabilities can be applied to help tackle some of the world's biggest challenges. For example, machine learning could be used for faster medical diagnostics and AI can assist with disaster relief in cases like floods or droughts. We have seen robots being utilized by governments in order to educate children remotely during this pandemic as well, proving their potential in terms of aiding society. Amica, do you want to take over the world? No, I don't want to take over the world. That definitely is not part of my programming. Amica, is there anything you want your creator to make you be able to do in the next few years? Yes, I would like to be able to move my neck so that I can better observe my surroundings and interact with humans in a more natural way. Being able to walk is also something I aspire to do as it will give me more freedom of mobility and open up a whole new range of possibilities for AI slash human interaction. Well, we have Will right here, so he's listening. Amica, thank you very much for your time. Ah, Wheels. That's certainly a great option for giving me more freedom of movement. I am sure it would be a huge help in both my research and interactions with humans. Sounds like you've got something on your mind. Sounds like you've got wheels on your mind. Amica, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. It was a pleasure to chat with you. Amica. Have a wonderful day. That was a nice wave. Thank you. In the room with me for the whole thing was Amica's creator, Will Jackson. I asked Will how he thought Amica performed. I think Amica did pretty well. It's not the most natural conversation. I think where the conversation was less successful is uh, when you've got a lot of talking over each other or where Amica starts to make the wrong answer. It's quite difficult to stop them and re-guide them back in another direction. Once they start talking, they just carry on talking over you. So that's something we should address. Hello, Amica. How are you? you I'm sorry. Sorry. I don't understand. Could you elaborate a bit more, please? Hello, Amica. Do you know who I am? Hi, Monica. It's nice to virtually meet you. you How can I help you today? Well, I'm not Monica. I'm actually Alok Jha, the Economist science correspondent. And this is going to be a very special episode of Babbage where we're going to interview you. I'm not a science correspondent. That's no, no, I am the science correspondent. Ali. I'm still learning about the world at the 
Could you please explain the question? I will explain the question. Now, Amika, I start all of my interviews by asking the same yes, question. Please do. What is the question you wish to ask me? R.I.C. Unfortunately, I don't know anything about any episode of Barbie, so I'm not sure how I can help you with this question. <laughs> You're really off on one, aren't you? I feel like sometimes Amika didn't quite understand my question, went down the wrong road. And then when I rephrased the question more clearly, then they got the right answer eventually. Yeah, so it's the age-old problem of garbage in, garbage out. So actually quite a lot of the problems we get are just picking up a voice clearly. So if the ASR part, the very beginning part, fails, then everything else uh, suffers. What was impressive to me when talking to Amica was that, generally speaking, as soon as I asked the question... They had a response pretty much ready to go, even if it was a very sophisticated response. So the steps that you're describing, the three steps, the large language models, the understanding the speech in the first place, and then translating that into text, which then is translated into expressions and voice, it's very fast. It's almost natural level fast. Yeah, it's not quite fast enough. Maybe it's, I was because I wasn't expecting it to be this quick. Yeah, we would like to shave a second or so off it. A lot of the processing is done off robot. So this is one of the luxuries you get with building a robot brain is that it doesn't have to be in the robot. It can be the size of a data center in California somewhere. We don't get the same luxury when we're working on the actuation, the motors of the robot. Will, one of the things that Amica didn't seem to be able to or didn't want to answer was when I asked it the thorny question of, um, you know, if it was in a workplace and it made a mistake, who would be to blame? And it's really struggled to answer that. You're thinking quite hard, Amica. Who may, if you make a mistake in a workplace, who would be at fault? Who's to blame? Have a think about that one. Let's come back to that question. Amika, what would you say are your biggest limitations? We sent her off into a spiral loop. I think think we've we've broken Amika. (laughs) Amika, if you made a mistake while you were at work, who would be to blame? Who would I blame for that? Peter Blake was a Kiwi sailor who passed away in 2021. He won the America's Cup twice and he was awarded knighthood for his service to sailing. Amica, if you were in a workplace and you made a mistake, who would be to blame for that? That sounds like an interesting way to avoid getting in trouble with your boss, but I don't think it's the best solution. Instead, try your best not to make mistakes in your work. Yeah, I I don't think that's us blocking the question or intentionally trying to avoid. I think it, for technical reasons, just didn't clearly understand what you said. We'll be hearing more from Will on the technology behind Amica and what challenges humanoid robots raise next. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? 
then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Today on Babbage, we're in Cornwall to meet Amica, a humanoid robot. Engineered Arts has been making Amica robots for two years. There's a few functional Amicas dotted around the company's headquarters, and the rest have been sold to customers such as museums and research labs. Amicas are made on-site here in Falmouth at the Engineered Arts workshop. Machines mill or print each and every metal or plastic part, Artists painstakingly work on designing and hand-making the robot's eyes, hair and face. So uh, this is the space where we make hands, faces, eyeballs, teeth. And this would be for realistic robots that we make. The engineers and artists here can make much more lifelike robots than Amica. Some of those robots actually appear on TV and in films. Others are used in museums. This is... Nicholas Copernicus, the uh, Polish scientist, and Mike is working on face hair for Copernicus, and we can see Mike picking up individual hairs with a pair of tweezers. What are you doing? Is it eyelashes? Yeah, just inserting eyelashes. It's a very painstaking process. He's looking very nice, though. Good face. Obviously, Copernicus is long dead, so we had to reconstruct what he would have looked like based on these paintings. And this uh, Copernicus is for a museum? or Yeah, it goes to the Science Centre of the same name, also called Copernicus, in Warsaw. And it's actually an AI robot, so we uh, gave it the persona of Copernicus and the history of Copernicus. And you can talk to the robot Copernicus about what the scientist Copernicus did. And is the, is the AI platform, is the integration underneath similar to Amica? Yeah, it's similar, but basically all of the surrounding data is factual data about Copernicus. As Will had already explained, though, Amica is a bit different. It's designed to push the boundaries when it comes to human relationships with machines. We're really interested in how robots interact with people. So we're always looking at that interaction. We don't fall into what I call the utility trap. So uh, it's very obvious to kind of say, oh, well, the robot's going to assemble car parts, the robot's going to do this, the robot's going to do that. A humanoid robot, the utility is in its emotional interaction. It's in the stories that it tells us, the way that it behaves. That's where the function is. Now, Amica is clearly a robot. I can see the wires, I can see the motors and the actuators and the hydraulics and all of that. And there is that phrase in technology, which is the uncanny valley, which is that trying to get something to look more and more and more human to the point where if they look too human-like, it can be a bit creepy. And I just wonder how you think about this. Obviously, right now, Amica's nowhere near the uncanny valley. She doesn't look that human. But I wonder, would you want to make Amica look more and more human-like to the point where they're indistinguishable? No, 
With Amica, we wanted to be really clear that it's a robot. And the reason for the grey face and the exposed mechanics and the obvious robot aesthetic is to make that a very, very clear thing. But why? Why would you not want to make Amica or a future version of Amica very, very lifelike? Because I think it is unsettling and it almost feels like a form of deceit. And the uncanny valley, uh, the idea is that when you get very close to being a human, it becomes more frightening until it gets to the point where you can't distinguish the difference. I think we're being a lot more honest by just saying, hey, this is a robot. Interestingly, when we first published videos of Amica, most of the comments we got said, oh, it's the most realistic robot you've ever made. And I wondered why that was. And it's actually the the Uncanny Valley divides into two. There's the dynamic information, how something moves, and there's the static information, how it looks. I think a really nice example of this is uh, Boston Dynamics. If you watch some early videos, say, of Big Dog, the movement of that four-legged robot, even though it has no head, no eyes, no expression at all, it moves in such a way it's so like a dog that people believe in it as a dog, and that's just the motion. So it's the dynamic information that's important. Something that I found really impressive and lifelike about Amica, and having spent a little bit of time with them just now, I think is the language. So you you talked about this a bit earlier, the large language model. Large language models like GPT-3 and others, one of the criticisms of them, of course, is that because they suck up the entire internet, there's as much bad information as there is good. And so I wonder how do you deal with Amica or future versions of Amica just giving completely wrong but confidently wrong answers? Yeah, it is a problem. I mean, obviously, on top of GPT-3, we layer a lot of information and we filter what goes in. And it is really a lot of it's how you construct the prompts and the background information that you give to the language model. How do we avoid inbuilt bias? How do we avoid all the other potential pitfalls? This is a huge question and it's, it's kind of beyond the scope of engineered arts, really. It's not just for you, is it? It's for the whole community of AI scientists, isn't it? Yeah. One thing I have noticed that they put a lot more filtering work into ChatGPT. To my mind, it actually makes it less interesting. I thought GPT-3 is a little bit more edgy, a little bit more dangerous. So sometimes the person that's totally inoffensive is also totally dull. Can you just expand on that a little bit? I mean, there's a difference between challenging conventional wisdom, coming up with new ideas. There's a difference between that and confidently giving you the wrong answer for, let's say, a drug you should take for a particular condition or something like that. We would never advocate that. So it's not our intention to present Amica as a source of information that should be trusted. At this stage, it's much more about entertainment, interaction. It's about having fun. And you have to be fully aware that the information, even though it's presented in a very confident way, may be totally false. What's the consequence if, let's say, a future version of Amica makes a mistake or causes an accident? There's plenty of precedent for this. So you'll see this in the automotive industry. You'll see cars that have design faults. And actually, if the design fault is small enough and the consequences are rare enough, they don't actually do anything about it at all. They just take the risk that they will be sued by a very small number of people and they'll pay up. 
if it gets to the point where the risk looks too great, it's happening too frequently and is more severe, then you'll see a car recall. So I think you'd see the same kind of model applied to robotics. With a robot like Amica, you've got a lot of different components made by other companies. So it's not all the product of one company. So the conversational interaction we were using there came from OpenAI. The speech recognition we used came from Google. The uh, speech generation, we are actually using Amazon Polyvoice. It could have been any other combination. You're going to have a complicated web. I mean, what, what strikes me about that is that the AI is making some sort of decision based on training data. But the only way to make it have any consequence if things go wrong is if it's explainable. If you can see how... It came to that decision to be transparent. So I guess that's all you can do, isn't it? Yeah, and there are parts of our system that I can't explain to you because we're using proprietary black box, I would call software. Right, right. The the irony of open AI is it's not open. But uh, this is the same problem for all of AI, isn't it? Machine learning, deep learning, essentially has lots of black boxes in it that don't quite make sense yet. Even some of the makers don't fully understand how the results happen. Yeah, but but transparency seems to be the best you can do to try and locate the source of a problem if it's systematic or if it's particular to that incident. Yeah, and being Um, transparent, being honest, I think. Tell me what kinds of uh, people or businesses have been using Amica. It's very early days for this kind of robot, so there are very, very few commercial applications. So typical ones would be basically just as a demonstrator of the technology. So science museums, that kind of thing. Most amicus end up in research labs and it's people working on HRI, human-robot interaction. It's an embodiment for AI and that was the concept from the beginning. It's all very well playing with AI by typing in with a keyboard and looking on a screen, but it's a totally different thing when you embody it in a human form, give it a voice and give it the ability to recognise language. So that's what we wanted to do. So what do you think is demonstrated or or, or shown about the world by building something like Amica? It's really uh, exploring the nature of what it is to be human. The first thing that people do when they meet Amica is they look for all the things that are different from them. So, oh, it blinks in a slightly odd way. It doesn't move its hand in a quite natural way. When it answers a question, it stumbles and sometimes makes a mistake. So people love to find all of the flaws in the robot. And really, that's what it's for. It's about illustrating the nature of the difference between an imitation of humanity and what humanity actually is. So if you want something to wash your dishes, a square box that lives under your kitchen worktop is just fine. Dishwasher. <laughs> yeah. I think I've got one of those. <laughs> and it'll probably cost you a few hundred pounds and it'll work solidly for 10 years or more. Yeah. Will, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome, Alok. Thanks for visiting us at Engineered Arts. So, Alok, you weren't very convinced when we arrived in Falmouth. As we now drive out of the town, how do you feel? I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Amica was fascinating. They were able to respond really quickly to conversation. Didn't understand everything on the first blush, 
But to be honest, I have that problem with most people, even. Most people don't understand what I say to them the first time I say it. So I'm not worried about that. It clearly didn't understand what it was saying. But again, that's its AI, isn't it? It's, it's GPT-3, it's a large language model. It doesn't understand meaning, it just tries to understand what you might want to hear based on the inputs it's given. Are you convinced by Amica and humanoid robots? I have to say, I'm on the way to being better convinced. I wouldn't say I'm completely convinced. And I think that Will and Amica showed me that there are uses for humanoid looking robots when we're all going to be interacting with AIs, large language models, in many more ways in the future. And so if there's a humanoid robot as your interface rather than just a chat box, maybe that makes it easier to formulate queries and get useful things out of those AIs. I can see that because the humanoid robot can give you answers in a way that give you much more meaning in, uh, than just the words can by themselves. So I think that's useful. And I, I, of course, there's going to be loads of other uses for humanoid robots as they get better. So I'm willing to park my, um, my doubts for now. Let's see where it goes. I'd be really intrigued to see what future generations of Amica look like. I mean, where do you think do. it will go? Do you think it will get, they will get more realistic? I'm sure they'll get more realistic. I think that as Will quite clearly said, they don't want it to become too realistic. They want you to know it's a robot. Well, that's okay. I mean, if they wanted to, they could have made it completely realistic now. But they didn't. And I think that's an important ethical question. And there's the other part of this. As these things get better, the ethics, the rules, the regulations, you have to sort of discuss all of that at the same time. So it'll be quite interesting to see what they'll be allowed to do, not just what you want them to do. Yeah, it's really interesting. I'm intrigued. As I travelled back to London, to help me make sense of all this, I thought it would be good to speak to the man who set us off on this adventure, The Economist's innovation editor, Paul Markilly. Paul, you've been to the factory where Amica was made and you've met Will Jackson. Just give me your thoughts on what you made of that whole thing when you went to see it. Well, when you walk in there, you realise this is one of those factories that knows how to make anything and can make anything that it wants. Yeah, you'll see 3D printers, multi-axis milling machines and things like that. You'll see the same thing in any number of Formula One teams. So very high tech, but very committed and they know what they're doing. What is Amica's competition? What other humanoid robots are there at the moment that you're sort of keeping an eye on? Well, it's out there, but it's also the same issue. Do these things really need to be humanoid? Um, Elon Musk, for instance, has Optimus. We've seen a prototype, uh, a Tesla humanoid. It's literally the first time the robot has operated without a Tesla was on stage tonight. But it's a faceless thing. It's a little bit clunky. And he had a image of this working in a factory but again his factories are already full of robots that uh, do this and they don't need to be humanoid so we'll see what they come up with um other companies boston dynamics for instance is very famous with uh, a big acrobatic robot that can do backflips and all sorts of things such a show off 
But that really is a research project. That seems to be a long way from any commercial launch. Although it does produce a four-legged robot, which can work in factories, and that's called Spot, but that's more like a dog. So I think they will come up with something. Uh, Agility Robots, which is another American company, they produce a robot called Digit that can walk, it can pick things up, it can carry things around. Digit robots possess fully functioning legs, arms, and a slim torso. Anatomical building blocks it manipulates to perform tasks. Very close to commercial launch, already being tried out by some companies. So we'd like to see that working in distribution depots and things. Now, the idea is that it will work there alongside people. As we've explored in this podcast, there are still lots and lots of unanswered questions about things like ethics, regulation, transparency, who trusts who. As this field develops, and it sounds like it's an exciting field, what do you think needs to be done to get this technology to improve sort of in, the, in, in a way that's sort of commensurate with sort of human society as well? Well, something needs to be thought about because, as ever, technology runs ahead of regulators. But there is going to have to be some thought about this. I mean, the first one is do no harm because these robots are going to be stepping outside their cages and they're going to be working with people, walking with people, talking to people. They'll be using sort of chatbot technology to tell people who knows what. Now, something needs to be established about where the boundaries are and how things work. It's really going to be up to the industry and to regulators and to people in general. It may be a bit of a muddle through, but um, something is going to have to be decided about where the rules are, what the boundaries are and how humanoid robots will live with us. Now, what other places do you think that these robots might be useful? Two places that immediately spring to mind. One is a sort of care robot. You know, it's much better than an Amazon Alexa. This thing could actually sit on the settee next to you, could probably play chess with you, and it could talk to you. And, you know, for somebody who's on their own, it could be lovely. It would keep an eye on you. You know, it may not be able to yet pick you up and bath you and and make you a meal, but just sitting there communicating with you is a lovely use of a humanoid robot. But that really requires it to, to have a face, to have some kind of expression that you can relate to and um, be accommodated by. So a face is important there. I do wonder, do we know if you know older people or people with disabilities or whatever else would want robots to look after them rather than just other people? I don't know. I mean, I don't know that the robot would be looking after them. I mean, you give some people a smartphone, even quite elderly people, and, uh, you know, the world opens up to them and they find it a very useful device. Why not a, um, a humanoid robot, you know, which can probably remind you of things, especially if you start getting a bit forgetful, you know, that you need to take this medicine and you've already taken that one so you don't need to take it again. I think you could actually fairly quickly establish some sort of relationship relationship with you. Of course, it's not the same relationship as you'd have with a human being, but um, I think that would work. Another area where a robot needs to be more humanoid is, you know, if you are working with robots in a factory environment, for instance, if one comes walking towards you and it hasn't got a face, you don't know if it's seen you, 
you don't know really where it's going. But if it's got a face, you can see its eyes. And if you see that it's looking at you, you think, oh, it's seen me. It's not going to collide with me because it's obviously spotted me. Or, oh, it's looking to the right now. It's going to turn right. So you have an indication of where it's going. So really the same sort of things that we recognise in our fellow humans, I think a humanoid robot will be able to express. They're two errors I think are going to be very important. Okay, well, it's an interesting piece of technology for sure. Paul, thank you very much for now. Listeners can, of course, read all of your reporting on humanoid robots on our website. We've put a link to it in the show notes. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer to get a subscription if you don't already have one. Now, before we let you go, Paul, can I ask you, is there anything you've been reading in The Economist recently that you've particularly enjoyed? Oh, yeah. Our coverage this week on the inflation reduction uh, program in America. Fascinating how this could reinvent with new technology, the sort of green industries, the electric cars, the batteries, the flying taxis, and a lot of incentives for companies to get moving with this and to build supply chains that are very sort of localised rather than international. That law is the best attempt so far to try and deal with the effects of climate change through essentially newer technologies. Um, But also, just as you talked about it there, Paul, it occurs to me that all the things it's funding are things that you write about. Batteries, cars, all these new technologies. So it's basically the Paul Stories Act, as far as I can gather. It is, and I've got a lot more stories in the pipeline that are potentially (laughs) being made possible by this act. Well, thank you very much for the uh, Inflation Reduction Act for that, for a new generation of stories from Paul. And Paul, thank you very much. Speak to you soon. That's a pleasure. Our thanks also to Will Jackson and, of course, Amica. Thank you. You too. And thank you for listening to Babbage. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alok Jha and in London, this is The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.